The Start. On Demand. On Demand. Winnipeg firefighters' racial bias prevented them from helping an Indigenous patient last year. That's the most recent finding from an independent review of the incident, and it's forcing the city to take a hard look at systemic racism within its organizations. We'll speak to a professor on racism and bias. What do they mean, and what can we do about it? A community activist is asking, why do we even have homelessness in Winnipeg with all of our empty buildings? As we head into a frozen weekend, we'll check in with the guy who loves it, the man known as Frosty Face, and a toiletry bag containing some cocaine was left behind at a gas station in Ashern. What's the worst thing you've ever lost? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling, who is off today, and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, February 4th podcast for The Start. McGarry and McNabb. Mackling is off today. Before we talk about anything, I just want to take you back to how the show ended yesterday at 9.55, because there is a follow-up that must be addressed. Here's how the show ended. McNabb, you're going to try baking some bread or buns? Roberta sent me a recipe, and now I'm trying to figure out if I have even a tenth of the ingredients. I've got flour. I've got water. Apparently you need yeast. Don't have that. Don't know if I have any butter. Don't know if I have bread tins. Pretty sure I don't because I've never made it before. Why would I? <laughs> so, so there's some shopping involved now for the to make <laughs> so, the broth. And let's the be broth honest. And... This is dead in the water before it started. <laughs> so, Loren, I understand you you took your shot. How did it go? Oh, what a flop. Like, what a huge flop. First of all, I had to borrow some yeast because, as we've heard throughout this pandemic, many people are baking, so I couldn't find any and I didn't have any at home. So I texted a neighbor and and grabbed some yeast from her. But then you have to activate it, which I didn't know what that meant. Like, it it was an instance. You put it in some water, and then it does something magical. And I'm watching it like, is it happening? Like, I don't know this is happening. So I'm sending her pictures saying, is this activated? And she's like, oh, God, no, try again. So, you know, you try again. Then I make the dough. So Roberta sent me this recipe for bread, but which, which was... Which she said you could also use for buns. And so the dough is just crazy sticky. I was like, this can't be right. So baking's a science, right? You're not supposed to play with the ingredients. But I did. I started adding more flour, then a bit more water, (laughs) then I'm mixing it all up. Then I missed the part where it said, let it rise for an hour. I let it rise for like 12 minutes. (laughs) So, and I knew you're supposed to. Like, I know, I know this. I watched my mom bake buns. I watched my grandma make like delicious biscuits and buns and bread over the years. Like I know, like I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I don't think, but I missed this crucial step. And then halfway through the first batch in the oven, I was like, Oh my God, it said, let it sit for an hour. So I let the remaining dough sit, but it didn't rise. The buns in the oven didn't rise. They're flat. So then I tried to save them by like boiling them a bit with some butter and salt. And then they kind of looked like scones. So then I was like, on the outside, these look good. Like they look real good. So I bring them to the kids after school as I pick them up. I made buns today. And my one son loves bread and butter. He's just, yes. And he takes a bite. He's like, oh, crunchy. (laughs) I was like, yes. What every bun maker wants to hear. A crunchy (laughs) bun. (laughs) <laughs> that is amazing. So I they're, look, they're hard. Like I might just put them out on the outdoor rink as pucks. It was, <laughs> I I will try again because I want to be good at this, but I right now am not good at it, Brett. Well, good for you, first of all, for for taking your shot. And I think that's one of the reasons why I uh, haven't really made an effort to really start cooking. And I think it's because I know that I am going to make some awful, awful mistakes. And I just don't have, I don't know if I have the energy or the time to endure those mistakes when I can just so easily pick up the phone and order something that I know is going to be a slam dunk, tasty meal. Uh, But yeah, good for you. That sounds like quite the adventure. Well, the big difference between cooking and baking, and I know this, people have said this, like cooking, you can play with the ingredients a bit, right? You can take away some of the salt, add it, you can add different, you know, it's not, if it's a disaster, then you just really didn't pay attention to anything at all. But baking is a science and maybe even an art, like to feel the dough. Like as I, as I was doing it, I felt great. I was like, look at me right now. Like I am kneading this dough. I'm on the counter. Like I felt very good about myself. 
Here we are. I've got no buns to eat this morning, Brad. I wouldn't even give them to you. Like, I wouldn't give them away to anyone for oh. free. Nothing. No, they're just awful. But well, here we are. I would try it. I Just out of out of curiosity, I think I've mentioned <laughs> this before. I was the guy who, when we worked at, uh, when I worked at Taco Bell, I was the guy when, when people would, uh, when we had slow days and they were experimenting in the kitchen but were too scared to try what they made. They'd say, Brett, come try this. And I'd come in and say, what is okay. it? It's like, I, I don't know. We, we wrapped this up and deep fried it. Okay, let me <laughs> give it a shot. So whether it was good or bad, I was always the guy who would try it. So uh, that sounds like fun. What's well, not- I'll mail them to you because I feel like they could survive several days in the wilderness on their own without any impact to them. I'll mail them. Anyway, we After can the nuclear apocalypse, Lorenz... <laughs> buns that were made on February 3rd shall still be alive. Can of tuna, buns. Boom. <laughs> so the the you woke up to howling wind. Uh, we got five centimeters of snow in Winnipeg, six in Brandon, 10 to 15 along the uh, Manitoba-Ontario border. Kind of a messy drive out there, so let us know what you're seeing at 204-780-6868. But uh, I was standing outside about uh, just 10 minutes before 6, and uh, I actually put a video up of it on our 680CJOB Instagram story. It's kind of our good morning slide because they're they're doing some construction here at 201 Portage, mm-hmm. and the tarp that is on the, the front of the building is just, it, it sounded like it was going to blow off. It's not a pleasant morning, Loren. No, and Derek is texting to say Highway 59 has really bad visibility in open areas along with icy sections south to Highway 52. And, and you know, of course, the more open spaces you're in, like the wider, you know, if you're in the, on the plains and you're making your trek into the city, yeah, that wind's going to be a problem. So let us know what you're seeing. And also let us know what you think about what our guest at 935 is doing. What do we call him? Frosty Face? Like Frosty what? Face. Frosty Face is making a mission to jump into cold ice water and by that we mean cutting a hole in the lake right once a month i think he's been efforting to do this throughout the winter yeah so um i don't want to judge and call him crazy right now i'll save that for a couple hours (laughs) but 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 these are the things we do when it's cold right like we try to we try to find ways to enjoy ourselves so i don't know if he's enjoying himself doing it but he's doing it We want to have a discussion about what is happening at the museum as it pertains to the pandemic. And um, as I, you know, was walking around this morning, smelling my breath, and <laughs> which was not great uh, in my mask, I thought I, I very much am looking forward forward to the day where I no longer need to wear these masks. Right. Yeah, and it's it's become the second nature. And yesterday, actually, for the first time, I stepped into a store and then out quickly yelling, sorry, sorry, because I didn't have my mask on, right? It's this thing that it's this, you, now you just reach into your pocket. You have a drawer, maybe. I don't know what everyone's system is, but mask is part of our daily life, along with many other things. And it has uh, the Manitoba Museum asking how we're going to remember this time. So it's actually collecting COVID-related artifacts in hopes of preserving them and storing them for future generations to, you know, maybe look at or study or what have you. And Roland Swatsky, who's the curator of history at the museum, says up until last year, they actually had zero 1918 influenza pandemic artifacts. They went looking to see what was there to kind of, you know, compare the times and, and see what was going on back then. And he said he couldn't find anything and he didn't want that to happen again, Brett. So they've actually put a call out for your artifacts. Uh, and they say the response has been really amazing and emotional. They've collected desk shields from schools. Apparently, some people have donated an engagement ring that was used in a socially distanced wedding. Uh, there was uh, masks from a funeral, a funeral program, because that's what people are going through now too, right? The funerals and how that's changed. And so I'm kind of curious, like if you were to preserve something from this time, Brett, is there anything that you keep to kind of remind yourself? Or as you say, is it tossed it away and never look back? Well, as much as I think we all wish we could just sort of put this behind us and, and forget about it, I do think it's important that we remember like the you know the 1918 pandemic was just something that was almost like this this mythical thing that happened and and I just hoped it would never happen and now we're that we're in the middle of it uh it's something that we we have to remember so I probably will preserve at least some of the masks uh just I hope so that I can hope to look at it one day and go remember in 2020 and 2021 where we had to walk around Wearing these stupid things, um, and in term, but the the engagement ring that was donated, that's a 
I was really surprised to hear you say that, that, you know, to, to hand that off. Like, that's an important piece. Yeah, I'm looking for a bit more. I'm going to send a note to the museum to get some more information because, you know, they, they say it's just been all sorts of really creative responses. And so this engagement ring is one of them. And I'm, I don't know where that came from or if the wedding happened and is over and so is the marriage. And maybe that's why the ring has been donated. I, I genuinely don't know what's behind that. But there's all these emotional moments, too. Like there's those there's those physical objects like the ring or the mask or the desk shield. But I was thinking, you know, over the past year... I. I tried hard not to be taking pictures, especially of the kids all the time. But there were a few moments over the past 10 months that I say, I have to get a photo of this. Like they need to remember this moment, you know, when they couldn't hang out with their friends and they couldn't hug their great grandma and they couldn't do certain things. And so I have captured some photos, you know, the first time we were outside playing in the spring and the neighbor kid was also out that they're good friends with. And they set up kind of forts 20 feet away and yelled and had conversations back and forth because they still weren't allowed to be close together. And so I have photos of that. The birthday parties, you know, like where the parade of people would come by and we'd go visit different friends who were having birthday parties, holding signs and telling them that we loved them, but from a distance. And my kids had their birthday in the fall and I have a couple photos, you know, friends who showed up and had a happy birthday playing from a speaker from their car and then just stood there and chatted with us and dropped off a gift. Like there's these really incredible moments too of kindness and generosity that I don't want them to forget. Like, a, you know, to remember how if you have a bad day, it can get worse. And here's the people that stepped up for you. And so there's a lot of, I think really like I get teary thinking about some of the kindness that has come from this as well. You mentioned pictures. I think one thing I should probably make sure that I harvest and and organize is somewhere in my phone. I have uh, a whole bunch of screenshots from various house party. Uh, you know, that's the app house party, similar to Zoom, you know, screenshots of Zoom meetings. I took a screenshot during our our Microsoft Teams meeting the other day. Uh, I, ha- I, I think I just like everybody else, when this first started last year, I think I posted some screenshots on social media. But that it, it ended up being that that was what your weekend social media feed looked like was just people taking screen grabs of their Zoom meetings and their their house parties. So I I got tired of seeing those, and I'm certainly not going to post them anymore. But I think it's important to remember those moments so that when you actually are with your friends, you don't take it for granted. Uh, because I think mm-hmm. well, that's one of the things that this pandemic has shown is all the things that we may have taken for granted and uh, how just how much I miss something as simple as having a couple of friends over to play a game and, uh, you know, maybe some drunk chess where I can flip the chess board. <laughs> <laughs> I think you hit it. It's moments too, right? Like there's definitely things we need. There's lessons to be learned, but there's artifacts we might want to say, but there's moments. So let us know what you would save or what you're going to try to do if we get through this, what you'll remember it by. We had a listener just text now, Brett, saying, hey, we did renos at our house. So under the floor, I wrote COVID 2020 with paint. The next owner of the house, when they remove the full floor, will see it and see what was done then. So that's kind of neat, a way to leave a little mark of history in your home. RCMP Manitoba. We've been reporting on it in Global News. The tweet reads, Did you lose a black toiletry bag at a gas station in Ashern on February 1st? Lucky for you, we have it! Contains two packs of smokes, two bottles of cannabis capsules, and six ounces of cocaine. Call RCMP to arrange for pickup. So that's uh, RCMP Manitoba. Their social media is great. Then there's pictures of the the contents of this bag if you want to see that. We've actually linked that to our uh, 680 CJOB Instagram. We'd love for you to follow us there. But that got us thinking about the the worst stuff that we've either, either lost or left behind. So Cam Poitras is here. Jeff Forte is here. Jeff Braun is here. Why don't we start with you, Jeff Braun? No, I'm the I'm the guy in the group that's so anal retentive. He is a place for everything and everything in its place, and nothing ever goes missing. I will say, in the last year, I have somehow lost two forks from my house, and uh, <laughs> it keeps me up at night. I just because I just don't understand how a fork just gets lost altogether. I I don't have I don't have that much stuff that it would could actually be hiding under thing you know it, it should be quite visible i must have thrown them in the garbage but I, I don't know what sort of mental state i'd have to be in to throw a fork in the garbage have, 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 it have freaks you, me out have you checked between the couch cushions i have okay oh, I do. Just oh yeah <laughs> do you ever eat in bed 
No, gross. No. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> maybe you Take have a, a TV. bowl of spaghetti to bed. Nothing wrong with that. Well, I don't know. Maybe Wind I, it up. Maybe you have a TV in your bedroom and you want to go watch TV and eat something in bed. I don't know. Well, he, he did find that bowl of cereal under his bed that uh, one time when he was, was a kid. I was 14 when that happened. <laughs> yeah, so? <laughs> and hence the retentiveness. Is it possible that a guest may have absconded with the forks? Negative. Oh, you know what? Actually, my mom found one of her spoons at my place yesterday. I've had it. I've had it since I moved out. Really? Yeah. Spoon thief. Yeah. She finally took it home yesterday. So she uh, took it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been almost two years. Oh, that's I'm taking great. this back. Boitress, what about you? Uh, well, if uh, Bronze, the inner guy that has a place for everything, I'm the exact opposite. Uh, I, I've lost so many things. It's a daily occurrence for me. I, I don't. I go to my fiance's house. I, I always leave something there every single time almost. I've lost a $1,500 check. I had to get that sent back to me. I lost my credit card. Hold on. Uh, a $1,500 check. Yeah, I was just getting back. I, I, I went and did World of Wheels out in Calgary. Uh, and they would they would give me a check at the end of it, and it was for fifteen hundred bucks. So I lost that. Uh, I lost my credit card on the first day. I was backpacking in Europe. Uh, I, do you want me to keep going? I can I can keep going. Yeah. Here. Are you my long lost brother? Yeah. This is what I'm wondering. No, like it's a daily occurrence. I I don't like I'll just put something. Oh, here's a perfect place for it, and then it immediately leaves my brain, and I forgot that I put it there. Like I'm looking for my keys all the time. I'm looking for my wallet all the time. I'm looking for my phone all the time. Uh, it's it's just constant. It's constant with me. I I I just I can't help it. I don't know. I just I just can't help it. Um, <laughs> I'm losing stuff all the time. Well, Loren, I, I have to give up. I have to give up. Like I I just say it'll just turn up when it turns up. I I, I can't spend the rest of my day looking for looking for it. <laughs> Loren, you say I know you you talk all the time about how you lose keys and stuff, but like, what's the one? Is there one like? Like Jeff Braun says, the forks keep them up at night. Is there something that ever kept you up at night because you lost it? No, because the list is too long. I'm, I'm seriously, thank God Cam and I aren't even in the same building together. We both fall down an elevator shaft or something and never be seen again. I have, like, I, I just yesterday was searching the house. Uh, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show, but we got a puppy. And we had him for, we, I didn't lose the puppy, but okay, I lost, I've lost the things I bought for him. And I put them away somewhere because I don't want them to have it right now. It's for when he's older. And I have these spots that I'll say, I'll put it away here. This is for safekeeping. And then I don't remember the spot. And it's never the same <laughs> spot. So I have like 19 different places I go and search for things. So it could be something really minor that I don't need. I'm not worried about this, right? Like, it's fine. I'll figure it out. But I've lost, like jewelry i don't even dare take my you know people take their rings off when they make hamburgers or baking or i was baking that those buns yesterday kneading dough with my my wedding ring on because i don't dare take it off because it will never come back it'll just disappear i I do the same thing i don't wear certain things because it's too important to me and i'm too afraid that i'm going to lose it because it's happened so many times and so and then but then i'll say to my husband you never get me jewelry and he sighs and says all right but don't lose it this time (laughs) and i got diamond studs for christmas two days later one just fell out like this fell out randomly he's bought me necklaces i don't know where they are i hope he's not listening right now and asking about them because there's all these really special things i've i'm now like you cam i put them away and i don't wear them i say thank you and then they go in a drawer because i will lose it you give if you want something lost i'm your gal i've left shoes I've lost. I've lost shoes. Yep. That's one of the weird. Yeah. That's one of the weird things I always wonder. Like when you're, I'm, I'll be out for a walk, and there will be one shoe <laughs> on a <laughs> bench scam. or on the sidewalk, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, what? What were the circumstances that led to this shoe being? But I guess if you were, if it maybe fell out of a bag or something. So is that what happened with you when you lost the shoes? Well, Cam? no, because I like bare. I like walking around in bare feet. So I will leave that place in bare feet and forget that I had shoes on. Because I will take my socks off at people's homes. I will do. Oh my that. god! Oh. I just can't get over how like we are right now. I'm disturbed by this whole thing. You like leave? So you? I know you wear the sandals in the summer, but you you will even skip the sandals and just walk around bare feet. Yeah. No, like. If I'm at your house and I'm comfortable enough, I will take my socks off. Do you live in the Shire? Like, should we start calling you Frodo Baggins? I wish. Oh, my God. That's that's the best place on earth. But right now, we want to talk about facial recognition. It's used all the time. The newest phones no longer require passwords. Instead, they can simply scan your face. And the technology is increasingly being used in security and surveillance. 
Yeah, but some of that technology, Brett, we're learning has come at a cost. As we speak, an investigation is actually underway into an American company that collected a vast amount of images without consent. And then they actually tried to sell those images and its service back to law enforcement. So that move broke several Canadian privacy laws. And it also has many of us thinking this morning about, well, what kind of technology are we using already in our life, like apps or other, that might be providing these images to services like this? Global's Ted Chernecki with the details. The misuse of facial recognition software is far more widespread than previously thought, according to a new 29-page study from the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. It's been looking into the American company Clearview AI in particular, because the RCMP and other police agencies had been using it, and without consent from the individual in question, it's illegal in Canada. We didn't consent to have our photos that we put on Facebook to be part of that database. And that's exactly what this issue is because our photos, our faces are biometric information, just like our fingerprint is to unlock our phones. We're all suspects. We're all put into this database. It would be all of, like all of us being lined up in a, in a police uh, lineup. There are some real problems with this technology as well in terms of its capability. Unlike Hollywood's version, facial recognition isn't that good. The report says it falsely identifies Asian and black individuals at a rate of 10 to 100 times higher than Caucasians. BC Civil Liberty says now is the time for all levels of government in Canada to enact bans on facial recognition surveillance by law enforcement and intelligence agencies. The report does, however, recognize the legitimate reasons for facial recognition. Most companies, organizations, want to do the right thing. They want to build trust with their customers. Uh, but when companies don't, there has to be a deterrent. There has to be a penalty that says to companies, uh, if you want to go down that route, you will pay uh, a price for doing so. For the first time, the American company says clearly that it is pulling out of the Canadian market. But we do make it so easy for another one to start up. The one thing that people should not do is to use those third-party apps that say, oh, what is your face going to look like in 20 years? Or how are you going to age? Because that is just a whole data mining experiment. I urge everybody to avoid those apps like the plague. And speaking of the plague, finally a benefit from COVID. All those face masks aren't going away, potentially messing up those illegal databases for years. Ted Chernecki, Global News. I just sent Loren, uh, she asked me, Did, have you ever used that face app, you know, back, I can't remember, it was a couple of years ago now when everybody was jumping on that bandwagon to, to see how you would look when if you were younger or how you might look when you're older. <laughs> and I sent three pics to Loren, two of them, which are younger and one much older. And what was your reaction, Loren? Just a straight up, ah, I never saw the young one, just the old one popped up. Um, and I thought, oh, wow, that's really, it's really something. I can't even figure out. It's it's kind of like a Magnum PI, but old look. I can't even describe it. But these apps, I mean, like they're warning to stop using them, right? Because you don't know where those images are going and who's collecting them and what where it will end up and what sort of database. And so it's all in good fun or, or good sadness, depending on how you view this photo, Brett, of uh, the older version of you. But Man, I, I don't know how many of us stop and think, well, where is this information going or where are these photos going if I submit my picture to that app? That's the first thing that I thought of after right. I did this. Uh, I had never, because it, the thought never even crossed my mind. I just thought, oh, this is neat. I got to check it out. But there are all sorts of, same with all of the filters that are available mm -hmm. on, on apps like Instagram or Snapchat, or they have these things where you can say like, what, which Disney character are you? And you hold your phone out and uh, in front of the camera. And then this, it, it, like this thing will sort of, it's like a spinning wheel that, that sits above your head and then it'll stop on a particular character and i think the the goal is that they they give you a character you don't like so you keep doing it uh but where is that information going so yeah it's uh, it's it's tough because you're just goofing around and playing ga you know it's basically playing games on your phone but uh, to think that there are could be more nefarious things happening in the background kind of sucks yeah, and we had a listener text just now to say, well, the only people who should fear facial recognition are criminals. But as you just heard in that story, sometimes this technology has misidentified or wrongly identified an accused in certain circumstances. So we want to be really aware of that. And then honestly, it's it's like, I don't need my image going elsewhere. I, there have been a lot of people who've had their images repurposed in ads. I've had friends and former colleagues who've had their face used in like, suddenly it shows up in an American 
uh, ad for a Vi- Viagra type pill. And they're like, hang on, Whoa. like where did, where did yes, like where did where did you get that? Why are you using that? I mean, it's it, there are some not good things happening with the use of our images. I think we have to be really aware of that. There are calls this morning for the city to fire the two firefighters accused of providing medical treatment to an Indigenous woman. Yeah, and an independent investigation found the pair failed to help after repeated requests from a local paramedic at the scene. And that failure to help delayed medical care and transportation of the patient. The report says the situation was fueled not only by an implicit racial bias towards the patient, but also towards the paramedic involved. Now, AMC Grand Chief Arlen Dumas is calling for the termination, while other advocates are saying this is an example, yet another one, of systemic racism in our community. The WFPS says it is going to immediately start anti-racism training that will tackle issues like racism and implicit bias. But what does that mean? Carl James is a professor of education at York University, and he has published several studies on racism and anti-black racism, and has also looked at the effectiveness of training like this and joins us now. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. It's a complicated and disturbing story, but I'm curious what your immediate reaction was when you read it and, and what it, what the bigger picture might be here. The, for me, it's what, what are some of the things that, that might have influenced what's, what went on? There, there are many things we don't know, yes. We don't know what might have been going on in the, in the uh, firefighter's mind, why he did not immediately go in and help, what, what were the conditions. And we, so we don't know some of those things because he didn't. However, we know that in, in many cases, race also plays a role in how people are perceived, the extent to which one, one might think that they might be able to really do something to help the person also so and racial differences uh, operate in in this case we have to wonder why why that that there was not the uh, support given at the time that that were required why did they the senior uh, person there have to say twice or more than once to 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 offer him asking the firefighter to provide the help needed. Many of things we don't know, but we would not underestimate the importance of racism. And the idea of training, yes, that, that's a very good idea. However, we know in many cases training do not work because sometimes, you know, one might be pulled into training because they are the the organization says, yes, we're going to have train everybody, especially when we say mandatory training. But at the same time, unless one is ready to start grappling with what the issues are, start grappling with how they're perceived or the attitudes they have towards a group of people, then tra- uh, uh, training might not work. And, and so we have to think about, is training the best in this situation? And the other point I have to make about training, too, is beyond just simply the individual aspect of training, we have to think about how is it that the organization itself might have produced and enabled a culture where certain groups of people that are supposed to be served equitably are not served equitably. So, so if we look at doing training, it's not only about the worker, him or herself. It's also about the organizational culture. And too often, training is happening, but the organization, organizational culture is never looked at, analyzed, and brought into line with with the idea of let's we have to do things differently and build a culture among us that's going to be more responsive to everybody. What is an implicit bias? That's that's the the idea that in in everything there is we all uh, we, we all start from the position that all of us have biases, and yes, we all do. We because because we cannot be doing everything and and making making uh, assumptions. We will make assumptions about everything we see and who we have interactions with. We're going to make assumptions, so we are saying that that's implicit. But that also means that the assumptions we have and the biases we have 
are not necessarily generated by ourselves. It's also generated by the information we have, we get around us. And those biases will influence how we see people, how we understand possibilities for individuals, and how we think of what help, when we give help to people, how that help might be received. So it's very much part of the uh, inherent in us. Again, we cannot look at biases are not only individual. Yes, I might have my individual biases, but at the same time, we have to start thinking, oh, how is it that institutions in which I work, the schools that I go to, and the society in which I live also inform the bias that they develop? That's key to thinking about bias beyond just simply uh, individual bias. Right. So then is there, you know, a bigger concern with the top down approach so you can you can train the people, maybe you could retrain the firefighters, you could retrain teachers if you're talking about schools, you could do all that. But if you're talking about a bit about a bigger systemic or a system issue, Carl, what do you do about that? Yes, there's a bigger system. We we have to do something about it. It means then everybody in our society, everybody in the institution, and we have to see how the entire society must be must dismantle the, the biases that we have. We must do the education. So therefore, what's happening in education must be looked at. At the same time, we're looking what hiring, hiring the, in the, in the, with the firefighters. We have to also look at what's hiring, what's going on in social service agencies. We can't, uh, one of the other thing is we have to start looking at the books that we, we introduce into into the schools. We also have to look at the, the kind of programs that media provide and how the media provides and positions people in our society. All this, therefore, so it's big, yes. And I might be sounding as if I'm talking about a dream. But at the same time, if we're going to tackle what we want to do to get the kind of equitable society that every citizen gets his or her service that he or she needs, if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to follow. Uh, we have to do it more than ju- just one system or one, one institution. Carl James is professor of education at York University, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Carl, thank you very much for this. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good day. Right now we want to continue the conversation that we were having in our previous half hour regarding the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service who say they're going to immediately start anti-racism and anti-oppression training following an independent investigation which concluded that two firefighters refused to help an Indigenous woman because of implicit racial bias. Yeah, and they actually say the situation wasn't just fueled by that bias towards the patient, but also towards the paramedic, Brett. And so they've said that there's no room for this in the service, that they're going to immediately start some training. And in our last segment, we spoke with a professor about how anti-racism or bias training might work on conscious bias, because his point was that we all have it. We all have some sort of implicit bias, inherent bias, and it starts with just admitting what those biases might be or what stereotypes we might use for different people. And I've, you know, even said in the past, if I'm out for a walk at night or when I was working downtown and going to the car and and if I saw, say, a lone male walking towards me, I might cross the street or make a different decision. And I don't know if I would do that with a woman. Right. So there's there's just simple biases like that. And then there's there's the other ones that can fuel all sorts of situations like the ones we've seen with the fire paramedic service and these accusations of racial bias and racism. I mean, this is a this is a very big conversation that needs to happen. And I'm curious if any of our listeners out there have ever been asked to take training like this and what they thought about it. Because Carl James, who was the professor at York University, he, he made a really good point about training and how it can be challenging and it might not work if you're forced to do it. Here's what he had to say. The idea of training, yes, that that's a very good idea. However, we know in many cases training do not work because sometimes, you know, one might be pulled into training because they are the, the organization says, yes, we're going to have, train everybody, especially when we say mandatory training. But at the same time, unless one is ready to start grappling with what the issues are, start grappling with how they're perceived or the attitudes they have towards a group of people, then tra- 
uh, uh, training might not work. And, and so we have to think about, is training the best in this situation? And the other point I have to make about training, too, is beyond just simply the individual aspect of training, we have to think about how is it that the organization itself might have produced and enabled a culture where certain groups of people that are supposed to be served equitably are not served equitably. So, so if we look at doing training, it's not only about the worker, him or herself. It's also about the organizational culture. So lots of interesting points there, Brett, right? I mean, if you go in it with a defensive mode and feel like you're being accused, are you even going to listen to what's being heard? Or, or is one ready to admit that they have those biases or racial biases? And then if I'm an individual that gets that training, but the culture from the top down is telling me something different, that's still a huge part of the problem. And so there's lots of places to take this today. But I'd like to know what people think when they hear this story and also what they've experienced if their workplace or organization has introduced this kind of training, anti-racism training. I just want to make a couple of quick points. Uh, that, that's a good thing that you mentioned there. Will people get defensive? Because it, we admitting that we have these biases, whether we know them or not, is difficult, right? Because that forces you to take a tough look at yourself and go, oh boy, yeah, I, uh, mm-hmm. I maybe did think things that are not cool, but having to, like, would you be willing to admit that out loud? I don't know that I'd want to do that. And the second thing, anytime you force anybody to do anything, like I think of just the the most basic comparison I can make is when you think about the books that you had to read in school, you know, like even if the book was good and some of the books I read in school, like are some of the best books I've ever read, but because I had to read them, I fought it and I didn't want to do it. It's like, cause it, because it was homework. So if something, when things are forced upon people sometimes it can have kind of uh not the the effect that one is looking for we do need to switch gears here because as the temperatures drop this week many within winnipeg's homeless community will once again be looking for a warm place to lay their head yeah and we've heard several stories spread over the past few months about winnipeg's most vulnerable often turning to bus shelters for warmth or rest this winter. And this is a phenomenon that started in the first wave of this pandemic, and it, of course, continues now. And it's one of the reasons why a tweet from our next guest stood out. It's from community activist Michael Redhead Champagne, and it reads in part, How do we even have homelessness in Winnipeg when there are so many buildings that are heated and guarded all year long, even through a pandemic? The empty manageable housing units are especially insulting. Those buildings receive more care and attention than our relatives on the street. Joining us now to tell us more about this tweet is Michael Redhead Champagne. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for having me and having this important conversation today. Yes, thank you for taking the time. And I want to apologize as I am working from home. So if anyone can hear a dog barking, I I want to apologize for that. We can hear uh, Moose. It sounds uh, yes, so and I'm sorry. I just wanted to acknowledge because he's upstairs and I don't want to pretend like it's not happening, Michael. But, uh, you know, I think this is really is an important conversation. And I'm curious what prompted this tweet. Were you seeing something specific on a certain street? Or is it more just generally you're frustrated with the empty buildings versus people with no place to rest? I think what was frustrating me is I was seeing an, a narrative from a lot of folks online around uh, people who are homeless in Winnipeg. I refer to them as our relatives on the street. They are in bus shelters, and um, I've been seeing a lot of commentary about how that's not safe for them to be in bus shelters. And it just really prompted me to think about where are people who don't have a place to stay in Winnipeg? Where are they supposed to go? Where do we want them to be during a pandemic? And I, it just seems like a sharp contrast where we have people that don't have a place to sleep at night in the city of Winnipeg. And then at the same time, we have low-income housing units that have been empty uh, in Manitoba housing for a long time. And there are units even here in the north end of Winnipeg where Um, I live, there are some Manitoba housing units that some units have been empty for up to two years. They've stopped doing maintenance on those units. And so it's confusing and frustrating for me to see that there are people cold and outside when we have like this housing stock that is sitting there uh, unmaintained. And so it just frustrates me because I know that in Winnipeg, um, it does get cold enough that 
people could pass away from exposure, and it has happened. And I, you know, I'm thinking of a number of years ago, there was a woman who passed away just outside of Portage Place. And this is actually, I think, where the root of that tweet comes from, because I remember Portage Place Mall, you know, a mall that's being heated and guarded and protected and, you know, maintained is this is this is going on while somebody's just on the other side of the wall freezing. And I don't think anybody in the city of Winnipeg is okay with that happening. And I just think it's important for us to be asking these questions. And well, and we want to talk more about uh, the, the this idea for providing more shelter in a moment. Um, but I just want to go back to the, the the bus shelter thing because I think uh, you may have seen the tweets. We've seen uh, some people refer to the the homeless people in these shelters as squatters, as illegal squatters. And I know yesterday I walked by one of the bus shacks on Graham. It was the one uh, just in front of City Place, and there were six people standing outside the shelter. And it was a pretty windy morning yesterday, but there were six people standing outside the shelter because the shelter was occupied by uh, some homeless people. Um, so I think maybe that's where the safety issue comes from. So well, I'm not suggesting that we should throw them out, drag them out into the street and get, but, but you know, do you understand or can you empathize at least with, the, with those who maybe want to use the shelter who are waiting for the bus, why it's kind of a tricky topic? Oh, yeah. I'm somebody who uses the bus myself, and so I can definitely appreciate that, you know, people want to be using the the bus stop and the bus shelter, and I think that that's, that's entirely fair. We should be expecting such a thing in the city of Winnipeg. But I also think it's important for us to be humane in the way that we respond to things like that, and I think that there are solutions that are possible within the city of Winnipeg to support those folks instead of saying, you know, me having a warm place to wait for the bus is more important than somebody who doesn't have a place to stay all night long who's warming themselves up right now. And I think there's there's another layer to this conversation because there is the conversation around um, drug use and paraphernalia that's laying around. And I think that those are important topics us to think about as well because these folks that are outside are they're literally doing the best that they can with the tools that they have available and while of course it's not comfortable or nice for people who um, have to be around it I do think it shows us that there are people in our community right now that still need our support and they're not getting it so I just like to ask myself the question of like you know, um, do I drink? Uh, do I drink coffee? Uh, do I have uh, a Tylenol when I have a headache? Do I have sugar? Um, are there people in my life that I know that drink alcohol or have nicotine? These are all substances that we all take when we're having a stressful day or when we're having a hard time. Uh, but we get to do it in the comfort of our own homes. And our relatives that don't have a home have to do that in the places that they can, which is like a bus shack. And so for me, I try to take a harm reduction approach and ask how can we provide the most possible supports for people while they're able to access the things that they need to deal with the pain and the challenges that they're uh, struggling with, but also us as citizens fulfilling our responsibilities as a society to take care of the people who need us. So I think we need to do more in terms of providing shelter, but also I think we as citizens of Winnipeg need to push a little bit harder um, on our different levels of government to try and address the fact that we do have legitimate and available housing stock in the city of Winnipeg right now where people could go and stay. You raised so many interesting points, Michael, and I'm curious. I don't want to conflate these two subjects, but I'm going to ask you if if it has to do with maybe the lens to which we view things, maybe the lens to which we see homeless or more vulnerable people in our city, uh, the lens to which maybe we view different demographics or different genders or different people. And I asked this morning because we're also talking about the story of the allegations against the two firefighters who were accused of preventing to preventing care, to provide care to an Indigenous mm-hmm. woman and also showing bias towards racial bias towards the paramedic in this story. And so, you know, there's all sorts of people coming in at, 
at this saying, well, that's not racism or that's not this or that's not that. And I, I think we have to take a hard look about where we're sitting when we make these statements. And, and again, that lens to which we view these really deep and complex issues in our community. I think that's so true. And I think I just want to mention that one of the initiatives I'm working on right now in the community is something called Health Buddies Winnipeg. And the reason I'm working on something called Health Buddies Winnipeg is because I recognize that a lot of people don't feel safe or comfortable when they're trying to access health care or they're trying to um, take care of their medical needs. And so people have expressed, many, many people have expressed that they don't feel um, safe when they're accessing medical care. And so Health Buddies is taking a look at what we can do to try and uh, accompany people when they're accessing medical care. And this would be like of mutual benefit, right? It would be helpful for the patients so that they feel safe accessing service, but it also would be helpful for the medical practitioner because they would have an extra set of eyes there to say, I have witnessed that this person is not actually being racist because I think there are situations where a third set of eyes would be able to de-escalate um, or even help just communicate between the patient and the medical provider to help uh, calm tensions and make sure services delivered in a meaningful and quality way. So before we let you go then, Michael, just to revisit the idea of using these empty buildings as shelter, would you be talking about like a temporary shelter or to set up some kind of a permanent housing? Um, I think for me, uh, what I would personally like to see is I would like to see the um, uh, stages of housing. So like I know that we have like homeless shelters would be like that emergency crisis moment, but then there's levels, right, of getting people into stability. So there's um, uh, an initiative in Winnipeg called the Bell Hotel, which is like stage two homelessness supports, like uh, housing first strategy, uh, providing people with a house first and then working with them on all the additional challenges they need afterwards. I would think that that would be an approach that would work well for us in Winnipeg. And there's some research nationally that backs up that it's actually financially cheaper to give somebody an apartment and then work with them on their additional needs after that. Um, so the housing first strategy is the one that I think would work best for us here. Michael Redhead Champagne, a community activist who always brings thought-provoking topics to the table. We appreciate your time, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, and I hope we can continue having these important conversations about how we make Winnipeg a safer city. You know, listening to this radio station, Loren has been working from home since March. And uh, as revealed this morning, Loren has a new member of the family. A uh, little chocolate, it's a chocolate lab? Mm-hmm. Chocolate yeah. lab. Well, a little bit of doodle in him. A little doodle, oh. mostly lab. Yeah. Okay. And his name I is think. Moose. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> his name is Moose. And at the beginning of our previous segment, we could hear Moose making his presence felt in your home. And uh, so... On top of all of the stuff you have. (laughs) (laughs) He's really something. So running around, we're texting in between. We're setting up interviews. We're writing intros. I'm texting with our news producer about which guests could be booked for other shows. And then in the middle of all of this, there's some howling. And, of course, we're working to potty train him because he got in trouble yesterday Mm. for going someplace he should not have. And so he's at the door howling, so I let him out. And he did his business, but then he was at the door howling to be let back in. And now we, I don't know what he wants now because much the same way you'd look to the baby and say, I've fed you, I've hugged you, you've gone to the washroom, you've slept. <laughs> I don't know what you want from me right now. So that's where we're at. Moose has given me a run for my money this morning. Is your, uh, is your, your husband home today? or? No, no. Well, so, he's, he's... You're, so it's just you and the dog? Alone? At this moment, yes. Yeah, oh. there's not a lot I can do about it. I go, in commercial breaks, I run up and down. And I'd be willing to take any advice people have for best training methods. Right now, I'm trying the spell system at the door, which I don't know if it's going to work, where he rings the bell, and then I open the door. But now he just rings it because it's fun. Oh, boy. Uh, and I don't want to let him downstairs because he will choke on all the Lego that's down here. And so I don't, I don't know what to do. I've, I might just have to start wearing like one of those Britney Spears headsets, you know, where I just walk around the house doing the show so I can deal with the dog. Britney Spears headset. You know what I mean. I know exactly like, what you little, mean. I've always wanted one of those mics where you're just like, yeah, 
dancing, doing some moves, doing a radio show. Please send me your dog tips. Ron says he wants a cookie. No, Ron. He's not getting a cookie. 857 on 680 CJOB. Indeed, you do not want the dog eating those Lego cookies. Dogs, puppies, and the stuff they chew, like my shoes... To, I could we couldn't have shoes like when we got got a dog, uh, my girlfriend and I ten years ago, we had to take all of our shoes off of the floor because he, he wrecked I think three pairs of shoes without even breaking a sweat. So uh, I wish you Godspeed on that. Well, Loren. I found him upstairs in the cupboard. I have no idea how he got in there, but he was chewing on my skates. Like that can't be good. <laughs> oh, like what? What's your? I mean, I guess they have a good smell to them that he likes, but that's gonna hurt <laughs> you, dog. Many of us will likely just hunker down and stay indoors, but the man we're about to speak with can't wait for the cold. Yeah, I think he actually thinks the colder, the better, because he celebrates Manitoba's winters through his social media account, Frosty Faced MB, and it's full of pics of people out enjoying the cold, their face warmers frozen over, ice in their facial hair or bangs or whatever. And there's also shots of people getting ready to jump in in an icy lake. And we don't just mean a lake, you know, in the fall or spring, but in the middle of winter. And Frosty Face Manitoba, a.k.a. Chris Bovelin, joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Just before I ask you the all-important cold question, do people ever just call you Frosty Face or that's just for social media purposes? Uh, yeah, I think there's uh, there's a, something going around now that people just assume that I only like the cold. I kind of like all weather, but uh, I do enjoy the cold as well. Uh, yeah, I've sort of been, been known on social media as Frosty Face, and I like to keep it that way so I can, you know, bring everyone in. I like the idea of everyone thinking they can be Frosty Face, not just me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can all get a Frosty Face going depending on the temperature, Chris. So what is the attraction to cold? I, I appreciate that you like all seasons, but when it comes to cold, there's, you know, there's a more people who might say they dislike the cold versus like. So what draws you to it? Well, I've always loved winter, so it's it's a pretty easy sell for me. But I think we have a pretty unique opportunity in this city and in this province to uh, to embrace something really unique. You know, everyone's seen pictures and probably experienced, uh, you know, palm trees, but very few people have ever thrown a snowball when you're looking at sort of a global phenomenon. And so I think we're really sitting in this amazing city where we, we get to do that. And then in the summer, we also get amazing weather. Like having uh, a city that goes from plus 30 to minus 30 is kind of incredible. And it's not like you're a lone wolf. You, you know, you've got your whole family trained up on this, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they're happy about that. I don't really give them a choice, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're all, no, I'm teasing. They, my kids love it. And, they, you know, I actually, uh, speaking of kids, I, I find that whenever I'm out in the cold and, and enjoying it, it's never the kids that want to go in. It's always the parents. So when it comes to the parents, and I'm that's fascinating to me, the kids, is it because the kids know better or the parents are ready for the thrill? What do you think drives that? I think it has to do with understanding winter. And this is really part of the project uh, is trying to get people to understand winter. Uh, we always, you know, tell people like wear warm clothing. And to me, that's kind of a no brainer. But if we did that in summer, you know, how do you enjoy summer? How do you enjoy summer activities? And we told them, well, just wear a hat. I mean, that sounds kind of weird, right? It's- oh, Chris, are you still there? Yeah. Hello. Sorry, we can hear you now. You just dropped out there for a second. Oh, uh, yeah, I was just saying that I think I think uh, what I'm trying to do and what I'm hoping people do is really understand winter. And so you can't just like, you know, put a warm jacket on and expect to enjoy winter. You need to to go out and toboggan, ski, snowshoe and all the rest of that. And I think kids have this innate thing where they go out and they go snowball fighting. They go snowshoeing. They go building things. And it's just sort of their innate nature to do that. And I think that's why they enjoy winter. Well, and I'll I'll admit that that as an adult, that's what I what I miss about winter is all the stuff that I did when I was a kid. You know, I haven't been on a toboggan for decades. Uh, I have only done downhill skiing twice, and I wasn't particularly good at it. But the second time I went out, I very much enjoyed it. But, yeah, kids, uh, they they want to go out and play in the snow uh, because it's just fun to do. Now, and as far as your kids go, too, like you – I think you have access to uh, the uh, part of the river trail to, for them as part of their commute to school. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, so we're lucky. We're we're not on the river, but we're about a block away. And I have to say, this year it's been pretty magical. I had the kids for a couple of weeks um, after the Christmas holidays. We were doing homeschooling for a couple of weeks, and I, 
I used it as an opportunity to explore Winnipeg. And so we do different neighborhoods every day and go skating. And this year it's been incredible. Uh, there's, there's trails all over the city and it's just, it's really like a magical place out there right now. Uh, so we would go out and we'd, we'd try a new neighborhood and go skating every day. And in the mornings, uh, if we have enough time, we'd take a little detour and walk along the river. It's, it's amazing. So tell me about what's going on with some of your own initiatives this year. You want to encourage other people to get out and enjoy the winter, but you, you've committed to swim in Manitoba's lakes year round. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think swim might be a little generous. Uh, <laughs> dip might be a better word for it. Uh, but yeah, I've, uh, I really, I love our lakes and I, uh, I think we're really lucky in this province. No matter where you are, you have access to hundreds of lakes within a couple of hours. Uh, and so I really, uh, I, I committed to swimming in it. And so we, uh, dug a hole last week and went swimming in January. I just squeaked it in and I'm going to be doing it every month. Uh, and also, I mean, we lost, uh, we lost our pools this year with COVID. So, uh, I've got to get my swimming in somehow. Which lake? Uh, I was out in big white shell. And how mm. did you get a, a temperature reading? I know at this point it doesn't matter, but <laughs> just out of sheer curiosity, so you can say the water was this cold and I jumped in. Well, see, here's the beauty is that visually it looks pretty striking, but water never goes below zero. So it's, it's always going to be sitting right at around zero. Well, that's right. still cold. It's either zero or it's ice, I guess. But the image of you on Instagram, uh, you cut out like it has to be six, at least six inches of ice. And then you jump in and I was waiting for you to pop up with that like, <gasps> like <laughs> look on your face, but you're super casual. Did you swear underwater? When did that happen? Yeah. It had to have happened. It's a bit of a show, really. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is cold. I'm not going to lie. It is cold. But uh, it's one of those things you kind of get used to. You, if you... We've gotten in the habit of uh, jumping in, then you get a warm blanket out. And even my kids, uh, my little six-year-old jumped in for the first time this year as well. And you you warm up, your body actually reacts to it. And as soon as you get out of the water, you almost feel like you're superheated, and then you can go back in. Uh, it is cold. You need to be prepared and have blankets and the fire going. Uh, but it's actually really not as bad as it looks. And when you look out at that scene, you've got the lakes and, and the frozen blocks of ice and uh, that black water. It's It's kind of the most amazing uh, feeling to be able to jump in knowing that in six months you could canoe on that same spot. And one of the cool things that you've done in your page as well is you've got these uh, different sort of terminologies, uh, some of them locally based. Like, for example, you refer to something called Manitoba Mascara. What is that? Well, the Manitoba Mascara is this beautiful, all-natural mascara that works equally well on men and women. And it's uh, the frost that builds up on your eyelashes when you when you're out and about, uh, whether you're running or even walking for half an hour this weekend, I'm sure I'm going to get a ton of them. And actually, I have to say, Brett um, sent me, I, I posted one of his photos this morning, but Brett sent me a beautiful photo. Uh, oh, do we lose Chris again? Oh, no, there, sorry. Uh, yeah, Brett sent me a beautiful photo um, of him, and he's got these, like, gorgeous eyebrows, but... <laughs> In the winter, he seems to get, like, we're talking Guy Fieri frosted tips on his eyebrows, and it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> I got to say, is it not? Don't, don't you feel, it, I think it's pride I feel when my eyelashes or eyebrows or hair get that. Like, you're like, yes, now I'm toughing it out. Well, and, you know, I always tell people as well that um, when you get a, a frosty face or you get that, you know, that buildup in your hair, it's actually a sign of being really warm. Uh, when you're cold, you go in and you warm up. Uh, people that are out for a long time and get this buildup, it's because they're warm and they're active. And you really have to be active and enjoying the outdoors. So these pictures, what I really wanted to do was showcase this. People smiling and really loving our winter. Uh, yeah, and taking pride in our province every day of the year. I think we're moving away from this sort of love-hate relationship and really just moving in towards a love yeah. of everything Winnipeg. And I, I really love it. So if someone wants to be featured on your Instagram account, if they get a picture of themselves with a frosty face, what do they do to, uh, to be seen by you? Uh, all they have to do is tag me. I'll find them. Um, and this year I'm going to start up a campaign again. I'm, I'm uh, wanting to turn people into postcards. So if you want to, just let me know and I'll print your face into a postcard and then you can send it to your friends or anywhere around the world. I really love the idea, especially this year as we're all hunkering down and not traveling. And we have such a great immigration population here, you know, that people from all over the world. But you could, I love the idea of like a frosty Winnipeg smile showing up, you know, on the beaches of Mexico. Normally we're out there vacationing and this year people can look at Winnipeg and be like, wow, what's going on over there? So this year, send a picture, tag me. And if you want, let me know and I'll turn you into a postcard too. 
at FrostyFaceMB on Instagram. Chris Bovalang joining us live on 680 CJOB. Chris, thank you very much for this. Great to chat with you again. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Love what you guys do. And you can also uh, use the hashtags FrostyFaceWPG or FrostyFaceMB. And uh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only reason he, he, he said beautiful eyebrows, that's very kind of him. I, I, I think I refer to it more as I have the forest tent caterpillar eyebrows. And uh, they just stick out so far. And uh, he's right. They get the frosted tips. Uh, I love the frosted tips. 1990s eyebrows. Yep. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.